Uh, would you all turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians this morning? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 21 is where we are today. We're in the series that we're calling Eureka. When you hear the word Eureka, what do you think about? You think about gold. You found treasure. When I was in the seventh grade, uh, my school took a field trip. It was an awesome field trip. We went to Sacramento. And then we ended up out at Sutter's Mill. You familiar with Sutter's Mill? Sutter's Mill is where the gold rush started. Uh, James Marshall was a carpenter. He was helping um, build this sawmill at the base of the Sierra Nevada mountains right along the American River. And he was down in the riverbed and he found these little small flakes of gold. And that's what started the gold rush in the 1800s. That's why we are called the Golden State. That's why our state seal has the word Eureka right at the top of it. That's why we have a basketball team that is called the Golden State Warriors. This is Pastor John's favorite team, by the way. Not the Lakers, not the Clippers, but the Golden State Warriors. That's why we have a team that because it was John Marshall's find that made us the Golden State. And when that word got out that he found that gold, uh, James Marshall in 1849, thousands of people started flooding to California. 80,000 people came to California by land. Another 40,000 came to California by the ocean. And those people are called the 49ers, not the football team, but, you know, the 49ers, the miners. And so for them, the, the word Eureka was the call of instant wealth. It was the call of early retirement, uh, of living an easy life. All they had to do was find the gold. That's it. They just had to find the gold. And though most of these people that came to California weren't miners, they didn't have a degree in anything having to do with geology or rocks or any of that. They just wanted the instant wealth. And quickly they realized just because it looked like gold didn't necessarily mean that it was gold. They found a lot of this stuff. This is not a chunk of gold. This is pyrite. It's known as fool's gold. And so this stuff was in the riverbeds. This stuff was in the mines. Uh, this stuff was in any creek. Uh, this stuff was all over the place. And that's when these miners who had no experience quickly realized that just because it glitters doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. And that's really the point for today. Just because it glitters doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. Uh, my grandfather was into... Uh, um, have you seen these guys at the beach? You know, um, this is classic 1980s metal detecting technology here. And, um, and what he would do, he would go on these camping vacations. He'd take his RV with my grandmother and they'd go camp at the beach and they'd wait for all the people to be done at the beach that day. And then he would go out and he would do, you know, what you've seen all those guys do. And he would go out and find all the treasures that they left behind. And so this thing doesn't work too well and it's now beeping at me because it found gold somewhere. There's gold down there. And he would bring home all the treasures that he found at the beach to show me and my sister. Uh, show us the rings and the necklaces and the watches that he brought back. And my sister and I saw that, we're like, oh, Eureka. 
as treasure. We don't need to go to college. We just need to buy one of these things. And, and we have life set. And so he showed us how this thing worked. He taught us how, how it works. And so then once he showed us how it worked, he took us, my sister and I, to local playgrounds. And we went in the sand and we were trying to find treasure where the, they have the swings with the slides, all the sand there. We'd be out there looking for, I don't know what we thought we'd find. I mean, kids are there. It's not like we're going to find a chunk of gold, but we were sure we we're going to find a chunk of gold. And as soon as that thing started beeping and beep, 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 and you get all excited and you find out where it is and then you start digging for it. You know, dig, it seems like you're digging to China, you're digging for it and you pull up, it's like a rusty bottle cap, you know, <laughs> or a penny or a Coke can, you know, and you're like, man, stinking thing. <laughs> And that's when I realized that just because it beeps doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. Just because it glitters doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. And just because it beeps doesn't necessarily mean that it's a treasure. And doctrinally speaking, Christian spiritual speaking, today's Christians here in our culture, us, we're in a similar position that I was in the 1980s as I was learning how to use that thing or the treasure seekers of 1849, there are great spiritual treasures that are promised around every corner. New philosophies that are always being invented. New truth is always being found. And there are these new ministries and new parachurch organizations that are ready to take this to a new conference and preach it to a whole new group of people, all very sparkly and shiny than the one before, promising great rewards And the point is, sometimes when it's sparkly, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. Sometimes when your attention is drawn to it, sometimes when it beeps, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. And that's why we started studying the two verses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. And that's where we're still today. We're going to spend another couple weeks on these two verses. These verses say, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. These verses describe the process of finding truth. Maybe even better said of separating truth from fiction. Of finding what's good and legit and what's not good and what's not legitimate biblically. There's a whole lot of spiritual fool's gold out there. There's a lot of spiritual fake truth out there. I mean, the Bible talks about a lot of subjects that we're all interested in. The Bible talks about sexuality. It talks about family, roles in the family, parents, uh, husbands, wives, kids. It talks about political things. It talks about immigration. It talks about abortion. It, It talks about the death penalty. It talks about all of these things. And that would be gold from Scripture. And yet some of that stuff is taken and it's reformed and repackaged into a point that it would be considered from the biblical point of view, foolish. We'd be gullible to believe some of those things. You know, now when we teach from the Bible about sexuality to understand that sex before marriage or sex outside of marriage is immoral, that doesn't even fit in our culture anymore. That's not even relevant anymore to teach or to think or to understand that homosexuality is immoral today. It's considered being discriminatory. And just because things in the Bible are kind of repackaged and reformed and something that looks good, it sounds legit. The Bible talks a lot about the family, roles in the family, husbands and wives and kids. 
But to think or to understand or to teach from the Bible that a wife is to fit into the spiritual leadership of her husband is considered anti-woman today. To teach or to understand that a man is to sacrificially serve and love his wife to the greatest depths is laughed at in every single locker room <laughs> you know, around town. And so there's some truth, there's some gold in Scripture, but sometimes people repackage it and take it and they grab it for their own stuff. It happens a lot politically. Jesus would be a Republican. No, he wouldn't. Jesus was a Democrat. He definitely voted Democratic. Uh, God is pro-immigration. No, no. God is anti-immigration. God is pro-death penalty. They get the chair if they steal gum. No, no, no. God is pro-life. And God is anti-abortion. No, no, no. God is pro-woman and gave women choice and gave them liberty and freedom to decide. And so the Bible is grabbed and torn in, in multiple directions. And how do we define which is true? What's gold? What's legitimate here? And what isn't? Because oftentimes we get something that looks good. It smells good. It's softer for a culture. You know, a loving God wouldn't do that, but they would do this. And so many Christians are attracted to the things that sparkle and that beep just because it's the current trend. There's a book out about it. There's a, there's a new program about it. There's a conference going across the United States about it. There's a, a, a speaker on the radio that talks a lot about it. And it's sparkly and it gets our attention. But the point of these verses is you have to do more with that before you, you take it and become gullible potentially. And so that's why we're studying these two verses. And last week we studied just two words in these two verses. We looked at examine everything. Those are the two, verses, two words we looked at last week. And we learned that God agrees with us when he said finding truth is not easy. Finding the truth is difficult. And so that's why the sermon's title for last week was finding truth isn't easy. And it wasn't easy for these Thessalonians either. Uh, the book that you've turned to, uh, these were some gullible Christians. They had a hard time figuring out what's true and figuring out what wasn't true. Apparently, they had believed somebody that told them that they had missed the rapture and that every Christian that had already died was going to miss the rapture as, as well. And we can't really give them that hard of a time. They didn't have the New Testament like you have it. Uh, they didn't have all the Bible study tools like you have on your phone. Um, but what they did have was they had this letter from the Apostle Paul. And this was the very first letter, 1 Thessalonians, that we're reading. It's the very first letter that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. And maybe you didn't know this. The Apostle Paul had taught in front of them. He had taught from the pulpit at that church. So they knew what, what the Apostle Paul had taught. And Paul says to them in this chapter, he says, hey, there's some more prophetic letters that are coming, more letters from God that are coming, and I don't want you to be deceived by some false teachers or by some stuff that gets glittery. I don't want you to, to take false teaching and false books. I only want you to, to take the stuff that is from God because what's from God is gold. But what comes from these other teachers and these other places is not gold. And so today we're just studying the very next word, the word carefully. Look at your Bible, and it says, but examine everything carefully. In, in your Bible, it is in mine. In your Bible, is that word italicized? You see it looks different than the other words that are around that. Whenever you see a, a word in the Bible that's italicized like that, it means something. 
it means that that word wasn't originally in the original language, that that word isn't there in the original language. This was written in Greek. And so the word carefully isn't there. And so it's really kind of more like this. This is kind of what it really was. But examine everything. That's how it is in the Greek. But this word examine is a really important word because it's used throughout the New Testament. Examine. What does examine mean? The word examine in the Greek is dokimazo. Dokimazo. You don't have to write that down. You don't have to memorize it. But the word is dokimazo. And dokimazo is throughout the New Testament. This isn't the only place that it's used. And it's not always translated examine. It's translated in many different ways depending on the context of the verse and the passage that it's in. And so I want to show you some of the other ways that this word is translated so you understand the meaning behind the word examine and why the translators would add that extra word carefully to this phrase. So sometimes dokimazo is not translated examine, it's translated analyze, to look at it, to look at the details of it, to look at the nuances, to turn it over and look at on the back and, and look underneath and look at all the little facets and uniquenesses to whatever it is that you're, you're examining. Another one is test. That's another way that this word is translated is to test it. Uh, put it through some tests, uh, put it through the uh, scientific theory, uh, make sure that, that it is what it says that it is, make sure that it passed the test. You think it's this? Uh, well, make sure that you think that it is. Another way that this word is often translated is prove. The word prove. If you have uh, the, uh, the old school, the King James Bible with you, this is how this word is translated in the King James. Prove everything. Actually, in the King James, it's prove all things. But it's prove everything. Prove it. You're in court in front of a judge. You've got to prove that it is what you say that it is. You can't just say that it is it. You have to prove it. You have to make sure that everything that it is and it says, put it up on the stand. Let's prove that this really is what it says it is, not just a saying that it is. Another way that it's uh, insinuated in Scripture is scrutinize, nitpick. Look at all the little uh, crevices. Look at all the little parts. Look at all the the, the details details and look at it critically. Uh, use your mind to critically think what this thing is, to scrutinize. Another word that is used, an idea that is translated is to judge it. Be kind of judgy about it. And not only should you put it to the test and, and not only should it be something that you're, you're looking at, you judge it. Stand back and say, is that really true? Is that really the way that it should be? And so that's the word examine. That's the word dokimazo. And so you can see why when you just put the word examine, that doesn't really tell the story at all of what that word means. And so now you can see why the translators would put the inference, the correct inference. You have to examine it carefully. It's not just look at it and toss it aside. No, I believe it. It's got a Christian sticker on it. Let's move on. That speaker says they go to a church. It must be good. Oh, that book is from a Christian publisher. Okay, it's got to be good. That, that, that radio station says they're Christian radio because they have a fish in their logo. It's got to be legit. You got to look at it carefully. That's what dokimazo means. It's a careful, critical, mind-engaged understanding of of whatever it is that you're addressing. And so the Apostle Paul uses the word everything, every single thing. 
And so why would God write this to this Thessalonian church? Why would he do that? Why write this down? Now, I've already kind of told you that, uh, that these Christians were gullible and that they had believed some false things about the rapture and about the death of Christians. But why would he say this and why would they be so gullible? Well, I want to show you why they were gullible. Look at Acts. So you have to turn back in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17. Why would these people be so gullible? Why would they just listen to anybody who shows up? The Bible tells us why. The Bible gives us the history of this church that we're reading about. Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. Acts 17 verse 1 says, Now when they, this is Paul and Silas, had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. So this is Paul and Silas showing up in this little town of Thessalonica. They're on a church-starting field trip, on a mission trip. And they show up in Thessalonica, it's just a town, just like Riverside, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, verse 2. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them... For three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus, who I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. So let's stop right there. Paul shows up into this town in Thessalonica, and he immediately goes to the synagogue. That's what he always did. He had a good rep. He had been a Pharisee, and so he had a good reputation, so that's why he would go and he would advocate using the Scripture. Now, what Scriptures would Paul be using when he would go into the synagogue? He'd be using the Old Testament. They didn't have a New Testament here. There was no such thing as what we're reading yet. It was being written as it was happening, and so they didn't have it. And so he would be using the Old Testament, advocating for Jesus being the Messiah, that Jesus was the one that was promised from the Old Testament. He'd go back, he'd show them in the Old Testament about the prophecy, the things that were going to come true about this Messiah, that he was God coming to earth in the flesh, live a perfect life, never sin one time. He goes to the cross. He's not dying for his sin because he's perfect. He's dying on the cross for the sins of people. He rises from the grave, proving that he is God. And so Paul is talking about all of these things. And then hundreds of people saw him after he raised from the grave. And then he goes back up into heaven. And he's in heaven waiting for people to put their faith and their trust in him as the Savior, as the Messiah, as the rescuer from their own sins. Sin separates people from God in a place called hell. But Jesus rescues people from that. He redeems them from that. He's the Messiah. And so he would go into these synagogues and he would begin to teach this. And so verse 4, what happens in fact? Thessalonica in this town where he's doing that, verse 4, and some of them were persuaded, and that's an important word, and we'll get back to that in a minute. They were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks. These are the Gentiles, so this is Gentiles are in this church and Jews are in this church, and a number of leading women. People get saved when they are persuaded by the Apostle Paul and his teaching from the Old Testament about the Messiah. Now, verse 5, but the Jews the people who had not been saved, becoming jealous and taking some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And so for the next several verses, it's all about the craziness that happens. And this is where the persecution begins for this church. 
we discussed last week about the persecution that comes to this church in Thessalonica. And the persecution was so bad that that was one of the things that, that prompted them to think that they had missed the rapture because they were already in the tribulation. And this is where that persecution began was right here. And it continued on. It was so bad, in fact, look at verse 10. The brethren, meaning the Christians of this church, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Now, if you've been around the Bible at all, Berea probably sounds familiar to you. Uh, This is uh, another group of Christians called the Bereans. And it says, and when they, Paul and Silas, arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews, just like they always would. Now, verse 11, this is the last verse, and this is the point of why I'm showing this to you. Now these, meaning these people in Berea, were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Huh. Now we have a comparison. We have a comparison between these Christians in Berea that Paul showed up to and comparing or contrasting them to these Christians in Thessalonica. The difference between the two. Now what's the difference between the two of these, these Christians that they meet in this town as opposed to the Christians that they just came from in the city of Thessalonica. We'll look at verse 11. They received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Notice what these people did when Paul shows up. When Paul shows up and he starts talking about the Old Testament, they, they said, prove it. He, he like has the, he's like the name tag apostle, you know? We don't believe you. You need to prove it to us. And so when he would roll out the Old Testament scriptures, they would actually open up their Bibles and go back to it and look at it. Look at the verses above it and look at the verses below it to make sure what the Apostle Paul saying was actually true. And then they said, well, but then you said this about that. What, where is that in the Old Testament? So then they would go back there and they would look at those verses too. They were judging Paul judging the Apostle Paul, trying to decide if what he was teaching was gold or if it was foolishness. See, they knew that just because it glittered and just because it beat doesn't necessarily mean that it was good. And those Christians in Berea, they analyzed, they documazoed what the Apostle Paul said. They tested it. They put it to the test. They, they were judging what he said. And whenever the scripture is put to scrutiny, it always survives and thrives. And so when the Apostle Paul is teaching, they're trying to decide, is this gold? Is this fool's gold? Should we, should we listen to this? Or is this just being gullible by taking this? They tested it. But did the Thessalonians do that? No, because this is the compare and contrast. They didn't do that. What were they in verse four? They were persuaded. They were persuaded just like they watched an infomercial and the infomercial guy had a tag that said Christian on it and they said, okay, we believe that. We believe that. We believe that guy. We're we're convinced by him. But obviously they were also persuaded by another guy who came in and told them, oh yeah, also you missed the rapture. Sorry guys, bunch of suckers. See, they just believed anybody. They were persuaded by anybody that had the name tag of Christian on them. They didn't dakimazo it. They didn't look into the detail. They weren't careful in their their understanding of God's word and finding the context and reading what was being said and taught from the Apostle Paul. 
And so now you can see why God would write this to this church in Thessalonica. Hey guys, you need to dokimazo this. You need to put this to the test. You need to be careful with the things that you hear. You have to judge it. You'd be a little judgy. You'd be a little critical. You got to nitpick that thing. You got to put it to the test so that you can prove to yourself. This whole testing thing and, and gold, um, it kind of made me think of, we took a, uh, our family, we ended up in some weird places on vacation. And, uh, and one of the places that we ended up was in this little small uh, Colorado town. It'd be, a, it'd be a ghost town if visitors didn't come in the summertime. There's really nothing there. Um, but it's an old mining town called Silverton. And, uh, oh, okay, some of you have been there. All right. So in Silverton, there's a gold mine tour. And it's up the main road that's paved. Then you have to go up to the right up in there. And it's on dirt back roads up in the back up there. And one of the unique things about going on this mine tour is before you go on the mine tour, they give you some gold pans. And there's some sluice boxes there. And you can start to pan for gold. And so here we are, just a picture of us, we're panning for gold. And so, you know, you get the scoop of dirt in it, you kind of slosh it around. You can see like sparkly stuff in there. You can see gold in it and like, oh, there's actually gold in here. So you shake it and the idea of shaking it is, you know, get the, the light stuff to come off because gold is heavy and it falls about, shake, 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 shake. It takes forever and so we're impatient. So we're kind of picking the gold out and putting it into our little vials there because we want to save our gold. And this time that we're doing this, one of the miners, he was old school minor minor and he was he's the one that takes you on the tour he was talking to some other tourists just kind of on the side of the building there and he was talking about where the sand in these sluice boxes come from he, you know i'm thinking oh well it comes from the river down below or it comes from inside the mine or it comes from the hill up above <laughs> he says we get the we get all the sand from the sluice boxes from home depot <laughs> <laughs> home depot <laughs> i just threw that i, I just threw it it's a bunch of trade there's no gold in there there's no gold in there. You'd be there forever. You'd never find any gold in there. And so then we, uh, we, we go on the tour. You get all dressed up for the tour. And so you go on the old hundred mine. It's pretty cool. They, they take you on a train back in there. And part of the tour is them sharing with you the tests that the 49ers, the miners in 49 and 50 and 51 and 52, the, the tests that the miners would use to check to see if something was gold or, or not. And one of the tests was the bite test. So you take whatever it was and you bite it. And it was called the, the broken tooth test because if it broke your tooth, then you know it was fool's gold, pyrite, because gold is very soft, but pyrite is a rock. And that's one way that you would know if it was fool's gold or not because you put it to the test. And they wouldn't yell eureka if it broke their tooth. They're in pain, but also because it wasn't real gold. Another thing that you could do with pyrite is, uh, and gold, you could rub it on a white rock. And if you rubbed it on a white rock, gold would leave kind of a yellowish mark. If you rubbed uh, pyrite on it, it would leave a black mark. You could also do that with um, porcelain tile. I brought some porcelain tile with me. Okay. And so you just, take the, you just take the tile and you rub the gold on it. You can't really see anything because I guess it's yellow, but you could take the, take the pyrite and you just rub the... And you see the black on it? Okay. We just put it to the test. We just dakimazoed this thing. Okay. 
is this real or fake? It's fake because we can see the black marks on the, on the tile. And that was one of the tests. Another one of the tests would have, it would have really helped me knowing this uh, before I was panning for gold. Another one, if you flake this off in really small pieces, the pyrite will float in water. And so we were picking the little gold flakes off the top of the water when we were thinking, what do we know? We didn't know anything, okay? And this is why the miners had to put it to the test. You had to find out if it was real gold before you could yell Eureka. And that's the point, obviously, that the Apostle Paul is making too. You have Thessalonians. You have to examine it. You have to dokimazo it. You have to put it to the test. You gotta, you gotta make sure if your teeth breaks or not. You gotta make sure if it's dark or if it's gold. You have to see if it's floating or if it's sinking. This is how you know if it's real. You have to compare it to what you know to be, be true. And here we are. Just because the, there's a book that says if you pray this prayer, all your dreams will come true, doesn't necessarily mean that that's true. I know it glitters. I know it's advertised on TV and on the radio, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. When your friends say, oh, I just got a word from the Lord, you have to dokimazo that. You have to test it. Or if uh, someone that you know is kind of spiritual or Christian says, well, a loving God would never fill in the blank. Well, you have to examine this. You have to dokimazo this. You, you have to be critical of it. I know that they might be your friends. I don't mean be critical of the friend, but you have to critique it. You have to have your mind engaged. You have to, you have to judge all of this. I know this kind of sounds kind of judgy, and some of you might be like, well, I thought the Bible said something about judging. Like, oh, don't judge. <laughs> does that sound familiar? Well, that, yeah, the Bible does say that. It comes from Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verse 1 says, do not judge so that you won't be judged. Well, what about that? Are we, are we supposed to judge or are we not supposed to judge? Which one is it? Well, I want to show you what this means. So you're in Acts right now in your Bible, hopefully. Turn in your Bibles left to the book of Matthew. While we're in the topic of judging, being critically minded, testing and evaluating, Maybe we should know what the Bible says about that. Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. And oftentimes people will quote this to subtly communicate that you should not have your mind engaged when it comes to spiritual truth. Verse 2, For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And this is Jesus speaking. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So Jesus is commenting here on a type of judgment the hypocritical judgment of other people, holding other people to a higher standard than you even hold yourself. And that is wrong. I think all of us would agree that that's wrong, to hold other people, other Christians, uh, to a higher standard than you even hold yourself. You have your own problems. You have your own issues. Who are you to judge someone that has even fewer issues than you? And I think we would all agree with Jesus on this topic. That kind of judgy, that is wrong. That is, that is condemned. And so there are some types of judgment that are condemned in Scripture. But there are at least three kinds of judgments that are commanded, meaning required of Christians that are in Scripture. I don't know if you knew that or not. I'm going to show you uh, these three. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. It says, for what do I have to do with judging, there's a word, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Outsiders is referring to people who aren't Christians. Well, what does a Christian have to do with judging people who are not Christians? Nothing. The answer is nothing. We don't judge people who aren't believers. We don't tell them to clean up their life and stop cussing and then they can come into the church. No, that's not how you become a Christian. It's not about behavior modification. We pray for them, we love them, we share the gospel with them and we want them to come to Christ and Jesus will change them, right? So so what do I have to do with judging outsiders? The answer is nothing. But, here you go, do you not judge those who are within the church? And the automatic assumption, the assumed answer is, or implied answer is, yes, you do judge people who are in the church. That Christians within a church, they care about sin that is pervading and affecting and influencing other people in the church, and they would address it. And that's what Matthew 18 is all about. Jesus gives a prescription for what a church would do when there is offensive sin within someone's life in the church. Because we care about each other and we, we don't want each other to be separated. We don't want each other to have broken fellowship. We want each other to be unified with Jesus Christ and unified as a body. And so we would, we are commanded to address overt, blatant, uh, hurtful sin within a church. We are to judge. It is commanded. It's required that we do that. And then finish up at the end. But those who are outside, people who aren't Christians, we don't, we don't do that. We're not to be judging of of people who aren't, well, how come they don't live morally like me? They don't care about what you think. <laughs> they don't care about the Bible. What, what makes you think that they should live like you? God is the one that will change them when they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But when you are a believer, there is some judgment that happens. Let me show you another one. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31 says, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Well, what's this talking about? Well, this is talking about careful, introspective uh, judging of your own self, uh, being critical of your own thoughts and emotions and actions, looking at yourself closely and evaluating it. I I know my intentions when I'm doing this. And you can analyze yourself You can judge yourself. You can put yourself to the test. As the Bible even says, put yourself to the test to make sure that you are even in the faith. That's this. This is what Matthew 7 is talking about. Hey, you hypocrite, don't don't judge those other people. Judge yourself. Take the log that's out of your own eye first. And if you judge yourself, if you were very introspective and very concerned about sin in your own life, then you would never need to be judged by anybody else in the church because you had already handled it between you and God. You're right between you and God and you and other people. You have a blameless conscience, like Paul said, between God and between other people. That's why you wouldn't be judged if you were already self-judging. And that's something that a Christian should be doing all the time, evaluating their life. Is there any sin in my life? I want to confess it to God so I have a right relationship with him and then I can have a right relationship with people. Let me show you another way that it talks about judging. It says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with a righteous judgment. This is obviously told to judge between right and wrong. That's what the word righteous means, right and wrong, true and false, gold and fool's gold, gold and pyrite, what's good, what's not good. Even the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 15 says, I speak as to wise men, 
you judge what I say. The Apostle Paul is saying, you be judgy of me. You compare this to scripture. You, you make sure that this is right, what I'm saying. And it's obvious as we start to documazo this idea of judgment in scripture. See, that's what we've just done here. We've documazo this idea of judgment. We, we've done it once for you. What it's like to look critically and analyze how one particular word, concept in scripture. Yeah, and there are some parts of, of judgment that are wrong and Christians should not participate in. But then there are other parts of judgment that are required and demanded from scripture. So now we've documazoed it. Now we understand all the aspects of it. And now we can understand why the Thessalonians needed this phrase in 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Hey, you've got to examine it. You have to pay attention to what's going on here. You can't just take some guy with a, a name tag and just believe everything that he says. So you're like, well, what do I do now? <laughs> How do I examine everything that comes to me from my friends or, or from the radio or from a speaker on the radio or from someone that teaches at some Christian conference that I go to? How do I examine that carefully? Well, Paul tells the Thessalonians how they should do it. And I'd figure if Paul tells the Thessalonians to do it that way, maybe we should do it too that way. So one last turn in your Bible to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15 Paul tells these Thessalonians, here's what you use to documazo. Here's what you use to examine it carefully. Here's how you find the real gold. Here's the test. Here's the analyze. Here's what you become critical of. Verse 15 of 2 Thessalonians 2 says, So then, brethren, stand firm. Hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Basically, don't trust the word of other weird people. That's what it's saying. Don't trust the letters from other weird people. It's right from Paul's mouth because he had taught in that church before he got run out from the persecution. Or he had written them now at this point. Now two of his first letters were to them. This is how you know. This is how you know. It's either directly from Paul's mouth, and he was an apostle speaking for God, or from his letters as an apostle speaking from God. This is how you know, not from some other weird person that has a, a title of speaker or president of a nonprofit organization or um, author in a book or your Christian friend. You have to compare it to something. You have to test it with something. You have to analyze the details. And so how do you do that? It's from God's word. I mean, you already knew the answer. But see, the point is the Thessalonians weren't doing that, and that's what made them gullible. And this is maybe a really long way to say, I, I don't want you to be gullible. I don't, I don't want you to just put stock in every weird Christian thing that you're going to hear when you get in your car and turn on your radio on the way home. There, there's some good stuff there. But there's also some stuff that isn't. So it's important that a Christian would, would do the bite test on the stuff. They'd kind of scrape a little bit of it off and, and make sure that it leaves a, a good mark. They'd make sure that what they're listening to and what they're buying into and what they're praying to God about isn't just floating in the water, but it has sunk to the bottom because it's legitimate. I don't want you to be confused. I don't want you to be gullible. 
It's God's word that becomes the parameter for us. And that's why we teach the Bible every single Sunday. It's because it becomes the way that we dokimazo everything. Now, the Apostle Paul had an interesting habit. He'd go into the synagogue, and he would first go there, and he'd tell everyone there about Jesus being the Messiah. That's where it all starts. And that's where it has started for most of you. There might be someone in here today who is yet to hear the good news of Jesus, and I want you to hear what the Apostle Paul would say when he would go into first church. Maybe this is your first time here. And uh, so it's kind of reverse. Instead of me going to a first church, you've come here to first church for the first time. And here's what you need to know about who Jesus is. And Jesus is God. He came to earth, he lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross for your sin. Three days later, he rose from the grave. You know, that Easter celebration is true. That was a true event in history. Hundreds of people saw him die. Thousands of people saw him die. Hundreds of people saw him back alive again because it really happened. And then he ascends back up into heaven. He is in heaven today alive. And he is waiting for people to put their faith and their trust in him. He is the only one that can rescue you from your sin. Sin is just things you do that you shouldn't do, things you say you shouldn't say, things you think you shouldn't think. And those things, those sins, separate you from God for eternity. The Bible says in a place called hell. But God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He doesn't want these, he didn't want these Thessalonians to go to hell here in the first century. He didn't want the Jews in Berea to go to hell. That's why he sent Paul there. And if you're hearing this for the first time, I think that's why God sent you here today. Because he doesn't want you to go to hell. He wants you to go to heaven. That's why he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. And all you need to do is put your faith in this Jesus for your faith and your trust and belief in this Jesus. And we'd like to give you the opportunity to do that this morning. So I'm going to ask, would you be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a minute this morning? Maybe you'd like to put your faith and trust in Jesus for the very first time today. We as a church family like to help you do that and maybe you're not sure what to do or what to say. Um, I can help you with that. You don't have to say anything out loud. God knows what's on your heart. He reads your mind. He understands your intentions. In the quietness of this moment, uh, you could say this to God. Just in your own heart, you could say, Dear God, I know that I've sinned. I've done things I shouldn't have done. And I know that that now separates me from God for all of eternity. And so I know I need a Savior. And I believe that this Jesus is that Savior. And so I put my faith and my trust in this Jesus. I believe that he is God that he died on the cross for my sin. I believe that he rose from the grave. And I believe that he's listening to my prayer now. And I put my trust and my faith and my eternity in this Jesus to rescue me from my sin. With your head still bowed and your eyes still closed, the immediate promise is that now you have the hope of eternity in heaven right now. And the Bible says that the third person, the Trinity, then comes and helps you live your life honoring to God. will help you understand the Bible. Maybe the Bible's confusing to you. Well, the Holy Spirit will help you understand it more. You come here more often and you'll understand it a little more too. But dear God, we pray as a church, we thank you for this reminder about the purpose of your word, the reason that we study it. We thank you for giving us uh, true words, true gold in your Bible so that we can rightly filter what is legitimate and what's not where we live. We thank you and we praise you for that as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.